Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, Holly. Hey, Dave. Welcome to the What Difference Does It Make podcast. Yes, uh, happy to be here for another week. Yeah. How are you doing? Doing good. Hanging in there. How about yourself? Same. <laughs> right. Good as can be, well as can be, healthy, safe, you know, disturbed, sad, all of it. Right. Well, the good news is we've got an amazing guest today. This we is do. Yeah, this is Allison Elwood. <laughs> As of this taping, we've only seen the first part of Laurel Canyon, which he is promoting right now. This is a documentary about the history of, of Laurel Canyon and uh, everything that, uh, that happened in the 60s and 70s and during the, the Renaissance period of, of, the, of the Los Angeles music scene in the 60s and 70s. And uh, Allison is the director of, of yes. the film, and it's, uh, you can see it on Epics. Yes, uh, Allison has also directed um, American Jihad, History of the Eagles, Parts 1 and 2, which we will probably get into as well. <laughs> Spring Broke, Magic Trip, Can Kesey's Search for a Cool Place. She has edited several feature documentary films, including the Oscar-nominated Enron, The Smartest Guys in the Room. Um, she's also been a part of Catching Hell, Gonzo, The the Life and Work of Dr. Hunter S. Thompson, as well as the upcoming Go-Go's documentary, which we may get into as well, because we Great. yeah, <laughs> we love that. Thank you, Allison, for, for joining us today. Yes, thank, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk to you guys. Wonderful. The first question we always ask everyone, <laughs> the start of your, your musical journey, what was your first album that you bought or exposure to, to music? Um, what was, where'd you grow up? And yeah, <laughs> what, reeled you, what reeled you into music? Yeah, I mean, I've always loved music. Um, I, I'm trying to think what the, what the first album might have been. I mean, probably uh, Inagata Devita. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's an intense first <laughs> first purchase. Yeah, yeah, I loved that album, Iron Butterfly. That was such a trip. It was always a, the thing when we'd go to parties. I was a kid then, you know, like eleven. We go oh, just one more song. It was like the 26 minute song. <laughs> <laughs> So I don't know. I mean, I've always loved music. It's um, it's great way of storytelling. It's a great way of sharing the human experience. And it just has always reached me. All kinds of music. I don't have a favorite type of music even. Did you, I mean, you grew up with the, the Laurel Canyon music scene. Were you a fan before you, I mean, I, I, I read somewhere that you, you had the idea for this years ago, many years ago, and it just yeah. came to fruition. So you always were a fan of the music. Yeah, I mean, I when I was living in Los Angeles, you know, over 20 years ago, um, I've always been obsessed with The Doors, too. They were one of my favorite bands. Um, and I started researching into doing a film about them and realized they lived in Laurel Canyon and then started realizing all this crossover of these other artists. So I tried to do it over 20 years ago, but at that point, the music rights were owned by so many disparate elements and trying to package it all together was 
you know, too daunting. So I dropped it. And then when it came back around a few years ago, um, I was thrilled. So yeah, I've been a fan of the music. You know, I was a little young for that scene then. Um, and I was living overseas for part of that time too. So I unfortunately didn't get to ever even go to Laurel Canyon until I was well into my twenties, but, um, it's a special place. There is something about the music that spans so many generations and we obviously didn't know when it was happening, you know, how many generations it was going to cross. So I first started listening years ago because my parents were fans, you know, were obviously, you know, much older. They were fans of the music. So I kind of took it on. And now, you know, my kids and their, their friends, you know, enjoy the music. You can't say that about all genres of music. What do you think it is about that? Is that just the music? There's the, the kind of maybe the magic that goes along with it. Yeah, I mean, it was also this moment where this real renaissance of the singer-songwriter was happening. So the songs are very personal and speak to people very personally. I, and I think that's what reaches so many people. And the stories are kind of universal. Like I said, it's all about the hum- sharing the human condition. And and when that speaks to someone, it's great. And it doesn't matter how old they are. I'm, I'm hearing from so many people who are sitting down to watch this who are my age or a little older, maybe a little younger, but then all of a sudden their kids come in and they're like, who are these guys? I know the names, yeah. but I don't know the names of the bands necessarily, but they know the individuals' names. And they're like, wow, this is really great. You know, they heard the music, but didn't really know the story. Yeah. So there's something certainly magical about that time and place. There are all those artists were just drawn to this place that had a mystique and shared with one another and learned from one another. Answer to your question, I know, but <laughs> no, no, no. I'm really interested in the in the the idea behind it because you can't really say that. Also, like you say, it's a it was a community, or like you've shown, it was a whole community. You know, I mean, I guess you found that with grunge in Seattle, yeah. but it's not. I don't know if it's as common now. So yeah, 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 I mean, those little pockets spring up in places. I mean, London, there, it's happened. New York, obviously, it happens, but it's so big, it's hard to. And that this happened in Los Angeles. I mean, it's funny because, you know, as we were talking earlier, I did the Go-Go's film sort of simultaneously to this one. So I've basically been in the LA music scene from 65 to 85. And the whole punk scene popped up, you know, just down the hill from where Laurel Canyon was. So mm-hmm. it's interesting. These pockets emerge. Mm-hmm. Explosions of creativity. California Dreaming was written in New York in the early 60s, years before we actually recorded it. I was begging John to go up to California. And he said, we can't. That's not where the business is. The business is in New York. But one night, John woke me up in the middle of the night. Wake up. I'm writing a song. Listen to this. I've been saying walk if I was in L.A. California dreaming on such a winter's day. I said, it's beautiful, John. He says, help me write it. I said, tomorrow. He said, no, help me write it now. So as a Doors fan, it must have been exciting for you to, how did you find this footage? I, I, in the first part, there's one of Jim Morrison, who kind of seems secluded a lot, or, you know, you never see a lot of him in these, these parties. All of a sudden, you, you have something of Jim Morrison riding a bicycle around Laurel Canyon in, the, in that area. Like, where, where'd this come from? How'd you find something like that? And how excited were you to find it? Just master researchers, researchers out looking for these things. Um, that was from some home movie footage that, um, you know, cause Jim was a film, as was, um, Ray, they were in film school at UCLA. So they, you know, they were shooting material. Um, 
So that's where that came from. And, you know, we just kept finding these little gems along the way. How did you find the photographers? Well, Henry, I knew Henry Diltz, I knew yeah. from the history of the Eagles. He was in that film and he provided yeah. a lot of stills for us there. And when I was working with Henry on that film, I was at his place and looking at all of his photographs going, oh my God, this is amazing. I knew he had all of these, you know, boxes labeled, you know, Neil, Joni, you know, Buffalo Springfield, whatever, all of them just in these little cases. And so I've always been mesmerized by his collection. And so with the minute this project became, looked like it was going to be a reality, I called Henry up right away and said, would you be interested? And I also called Gary Burden, his partner, who was alive still at the time when we first started this. Um, sadly, he passed since then. But Henry's like, yeah, I'm on. I'm, I'm in all the way. And once we got him in, because he's so well respected by all the artists, um, because he was also a musician, he was a musician before yeah. he was a photographer. So he was on board right away. And, and because of him, we were able to get so many of the other artists to say, okay, if, and if Henry's in, we're in. Yeah. So you used, it seemed like the photographers <laughs> were used as a narrator. Um, yeah. They were the only two, uh, or I'm sorry, Henry and, uh, and Nareet, uh, Nareet Wild. Nareet D- Wild Nareet, who's a, yeah. She's amazing in this film. It's yeah, really, she's really- I did not know Nareet prior to, to this project. We discovered her, her photographs and contacted her, and she was, like Henry, really excited to do this. Um, and she has just thousands of pictures that are stunningly beautiful. So we decided early on that they would they were they were our documentarians. They were going to be our guides through this because they lived there, they worked there, they photographed all of these artists. And when we would go to them to film them on camera, they would actually have something physical to do. They'd be showing us their slides or Nareet would be playing with a enlarger, you know, or going through photographs. Um and we didn't we wanted everyone else, all the other artists to be voice only. So that it was immersive and experiential, so you don't keep popping out for talking heads. Because there were so many artists, I think it would have been harder had you just kept cutting to their face all the time. It would just take you out of the moment. I thought it was such a really beautiful way of telling the story. And I didn't realize how how just warm and immersive, like you said, it would feel. But I thought it was such a wonderful way to tell the story. Yeah. It, it, and also, I mean, obviously, a number of the artists are, are sadly no longer with us. So there would have always been that discrepancy of who can be on camera, who can't. So early on, we just decided we would just level the playing field. And, and we were also using, we did a lot of interviews, but we also used a lot of archival interviews. So, you know, it was a way to um, mix and match all that material. I'd like to do a song or a piece of music that's just a pure expression of uh, joy. Love Street, that's one where I had the music and he just came up with those words. She lives on Love Street. His girlfriend Pam had just moved into that place up above the country store there. She has a house. She has a house and garden. I would like to see what happens. There's a store where the creatures meet. That is the Canyon Country store, the heart of Laurel Canyon. Did you have more footage of the Joni Mitchell? Because Joni Mitchell is the only artist you used on on screen currently. Uh, That's actually a pretty long time ago that that was shot. That was shot probably close to 30 years ago. Oh, wow. I thought it was more current than it. Not current, current, obviously. Yeah, that was. Oh, okay. But that that one of those scenes was one of my favorite parts where they ask, who are you? And she stops for like maybe 10 (laughs) seconds and goes really deep into 
Well, who is Joni Mitchell? When, when actually they just want her name. But that, I guess that's some insight into Joni's thinking, right? I think it says everything about her. It's like yes. she immediately goes to the deepest place. That was one of the first things I remember I was sitting with my editor going through that interview. And when that moment came up, I'm like, play that again. Mm-hmm. And we played it again. I said, that's how we're starting this whole series. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you know, we found a place for it. But it's not 10 seconds. It goes on for 40 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> and we just let her just sit there going, ah, I don't know. <laughs> so it only seemed like 10 seconds to you. <laughs> well, well I, I know. I, I got immersed in it too. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> it's crazy. I love it. Let's talk about the Laurel Canyon scene and these parties and just kind of this get together. I guess the the hub seemed to be where uh, Mama Cass Elliot lived. Is yep. that, yeah. So that's. Is this was this a weekly occurrence? Do you did you hear what how often these everyone got together? Or and I think it happened. I, I don't think it was ever planned. I think it happened quite frequently, and and it, I think that house was probably always people revolving in and out. I don't think the parties were ever planned there. I mean, I'm sure some were, but I think it was very spontaneous, and people would just show up. I think that was the gathering place. Um, but people went freely from house to house. The doors weren't locked. People would walk in, and say, "Hey, look what I'm working on." Um, you know, it was a very, you know, just special open time. Is that what you gathered from Mama Cass? Is, or, I mean, I guess that's how she got her name, that she really wanted to create this environment? Is that... Um, uh, that- I mean, I, unfortunately, I've, I never met her, of course, yeah. but um, from everything I've heard about her, um, she just was so warm and embracing and and encouraging and, and very nurturing of of everyone around her. And everyone was drawn to her. And it seems like a lot of these musicians are at a point in, uh, I think you got a lot of current interviews, but I think a lot of people, especially I'm, I'm guessing David Crosby really wants to get this story straight or make him, I mean, I, I think he acknowledges that he was an asshole back in the day. And now he, I think he had his own documentary, Remember My Name. Yes. Um, and I think, I, I think he wants to get his story out there. Yeah. Someone asked me about why didn't I try to make David Crosby look more like an asshole? <laughs> I'm like, yeah. Well, you know, I think that, um, I don't remember whether it's Roger or Chris Hillman that says, you know, the birds were more like, um, not so much a band of brothers, but more like a pirate ship. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that, that kind of sums it up. Um, you know, I mean, I think that, I, I mean, I can't speak for their motivation about why they want to tell the stories now. I, I suppose, you know, sure, they want to get this story straight. Um, you know, I mean, Jackson, when I interviewed Jackson, he was a little bit combative. He's like, there, there was, you know, all this Laurel Canyon stuff. It's just a myth. It was just a place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, you know, and then at the end of the interview, he said, well, good luck. It's an important story to tell. I'm like, well, <laughs> you <just> said <laughs> it is the, the, it's all a myth. Anyway, I let him have that say in the film, so he was happy about that, I think. <laughs> wonder if he was just being humble or he really knew how special it was. I don't know. I, th- I don't think Jackson um, says some- anything he doesn't mean. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. <laughs> so we're going to stop it right here. We are talking with Allison Elwood, the director of the documentary Laurel Canyon, which you can now see on the Epics channel. Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. 
Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. back to what difference does it make the podcast we are talking with allison elwood let's get back into it did you get neil young about- no yeah. neil, neil and Joni um did we we certainly reached out to them multiple times but they're notorious for not wanting to do these things we also reached out to um carol king and james taylor which we would have loved mm-hmm. to have included them and you know unfortunately again they just you know don't don't readily do these things so i you know it's, it's too bad they're not in this um but there were thankfully a lot of archival interviews with Joni and Neil, so we were able to um, tell their story without having to, inter- without even though we weren't able to interview them. Yeah, have you ever talked with Neil before? No, you've never had the chance. Okay, because I was going to ask, no. who's who's more ornery? I was going to is uh, I feel like Don Henley that you is, was probably the, <laughs> the hardest uh, to to pin down. What what were your impressions of him? Well, I knew Don quite well, obviously, from the Eagles film. Um, yeah. And he was one of the last interviews to come in. Um, and he agreed really at the at the 11th hour. And I, I sort of assumed he wasn't going to do it. And um, and he was lovely. He couldn't. He was very appreciative of the story being told. And he told some other great stories that we hadn't heard before. So he was great. He just, you know, he was reluctant, I guess, for a while to do it. But he came in at the end and he said some lovely things. So. He was great. Oh, that's great. He just seems like more of a serious guy. Not, not, I mean, ornery yeah. when, oh, ornery when, when poked, but I think he's just, he's just serious. And Neil Young, what, what, one of the things that you see, used some American bandstand footage. Yeah. <laughs> which, which I thought was so great because I did not watch it back then. So I had never seen that. And it just surprised me to see them on, it was Buffalo Springfield. Yeah. On, no, on American bandstand. Yeah. Explaining yeah. The, the origins of how the band got started. Yeah. <laughs> They stopped, we stopped, and then we started. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. That was really fun to see. Yeah. Surprising, though. No, I've not had the um, opportunity to speak with him ever, which is too bad, but maybe one day. Yeah. I, and actually, I was wondering, um, just back to the Eagles documentary, I think they were all filmed separately. No, none of them were together, uh, right? Wasn't that – I was they wondering were, if that was uh, the purpose of, like, to get everyone's story and see if it matched up or, or what their <laughs> – 
I, well, I, I was we fascinated. Saying, I love it was one of my favorite doc, music documentaries ever. Is the is that? Yeah. That oh, one. great. Thank you. Too. Yeah. Thank you. Um, no, we weren't, we weren't trying to get them to um, to to you know cooperate or not you know tell different versions of stories or anything. We did do an interview with Don and Glenn together, but we ended up not using it in the end. Um, mm. But no, we just, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot, to, it's, it's hard to interview more than one person at a time, honestly. And we wanted to get their individual stories. In fact, on that film, when, um, when Joe Walsh, who, who I'd interviewed, when he, he came to the office, he saw the film. And after he saw the film, he's like, shit, I didn't know we could be that open and honest. I want to do it again. <laughs> did so you let him? we interviewed him again. <laughs> how, much, how much better did he get uh you know it was just he just a little bit more detail in some of the in some of the gnarlier parts of the story um yeah and he was just a little more forthcoming and so we used both of the interviews and they were both great what is your secret to do you just let the people talk or what how do you get a good interview out of uh, out of any and uh, out of any person as someone who's interviewing people <laughs> yeah i mean well first of all you do do your research so you know what you're talking about is critical as you know um but just have it be a, a a conversation and the more of a conversation it feels like the more open people are willing to be um so yeah i mean on that one on eagles we interviewed people multiple times don and glenn in particular um yeah. I just like it to be conversational and, and, and make people feel relaxed. And if they can feel relaxed, um, usually you can get, you can have a nice conversation. They'll say honest things, you know, and they know that we're going, you know, I always also say at the beginning, you know, we're not sugarcoating anything, but you know, we're also not trying to be salacious here. So we just want to tell an honest story. And if you're honest, I'll be honest. Every Laurel Canyon documentary I've seen, there's there's been a number of them. They all talk about Mickey Dolenz and his Super 8 film. Did you get yeah. Did you get access to to that footage? Was any- uh, if it exists still, um, Mickey's holding onto it tightly. When actually, when I was at Nareed's house, she has all these boxes of stuff, and I found it was actually 16 millimeter he was shooting, and I found this reel of 16 millimeter and a reel to reel thing, and I said, Nareed, what is this? She's like, you know, I have no idea. <laughs> so I'm like, oh my god, it's the Mickey Dolan's footage. <laughs> so we went and took it to the lab, and it was ended up being like filler or something. I don't know, it was nothing. Uh, so I don't know the answer. If, if Mickey has it, he's holding tight to it. That was also great footage of them, of 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 all of them. Yeah, really great footage and fun to see. And I didn't, I guess, I hadn't realized what an integral part of the scene they were. I know. No, I didn't know that either. That was. And in fact, the the first day of shooting on the project was with Henry and Peter Tork died that day. Um, that phone call that happened, that right. really happened when we were filming. And um, and we knew at that moment that we would, that that's somehow how we would integrate them into the story. Um, but they really were extremely connected. It's crazy. Yeah, you just, because you don't think of them that way, but right. I see, I see now. Yeah. yeah. So- and he was more of a heart heartthrob than I realized. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah and then uh steven stills and peter tork roommates and steven stills almost with one of the monkeys i didn't know that either <laughs> but it worked out for the best yeah yeah it was kind of meant to be if you believe in that yeah exactly when they were auditioning for players of the monkeys every musician went down there and Stephen Stills almost was one of the monkeys. He went to audition, and they said, well, your tooth doesn't really work. He had a snaggle tooth. He said, well, let me send my roommate in to see you guys. 
and that was Peter Tork. Why do you want to be a monkey? Well, it's my natural inheritance. <laughs> um, so what was your field trip like when you went to, you know, you're doing your research and you probably came to Laurel Canyon and went to the Troubadour? Yeah, I mean, we started, I guess, probably close to three years ago. I mean, I was familiar with the canyon because I lived in LA for a long time. So I, you know, had been up there quite a bit and I just always just found it so beautiful. I wanted to live there at one point, but it was just way too expensive. Um, Which is funny. Sorry, I interrupt. It's so funny you say it's expensive because the point that was made in the film a couple of times by the musicians is how cheap it was to live there. Right. Like, like I thought gets discovered. (laughs) No longer, no longer cheap to be there. (laughs) So, you know, look, I had to reread a bunch of stuff that I had read years ago, um, obviously talking to Henry and going through all of his photographs and meeting Nareet and going through her stuff. You know, when we spent a lot of time driving around the canyon and Ryan, our suffering, our producer, did he, he was in the helicopter when we did all of our aerials. Those were not drone shots, they were helicopter shots. And so, you know, we learned, you know, we had learned a lot about the topography and geography up there. Um, so he, you know, we knew specifically what he was going to be trying to get, the little capillaries and all the little offshoots and everything. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's a beautiful, lovely place. And, you know, it's very scary driving there. My director of photography, Sam Painter, liked to drive and scare me to death when we were shooting. <laughs> it's fun to, it's fun to do the field trip, like Dave said, but I couldn't yeah. imagine living, you know, living up there, you know, up some of those streets. Yeah. yeah. So driving up there, they, there's some pretty scary roads. Yeah. <laughs> Are they still there, some of these homes? I, I know, um, you know, like, I think Morrison's home was burned down, or what uh, What's what remains of... Uh, of Joni's of- house is definitely still there. And in fact, I think she still owns it, actually. I think she rents mm-hmm. it out. I don't know if anybody... Uh, I mean, I'm sure some of the specific ones are still there. I can't think of any offhand. I think Jim's place is... Well, I don't know it's, if it burned down or not. It was behind the corner store. Yeah, it's there. I think they call <laughs> yeah. it Love Street. It's like there's like yeah, a little yeah, plaque yeah. that says Love Street. Love Street, yeah. Another photographer the um is uh is Graham Nash. Did you get yeah. any, did you get any access to, to his photos or Yes, and his photos or some of the photos of Joni's uh, of Joni are Graham's and they're just stunning. Mm-hmm. He's he's actually a really good photographer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um yeah, so we definitely use some of his photographs. Did you know when you, so you say you, you worked with Henry on the, the Eagles documentary, he was really good on screen. Yeah. Yeah. He's a character. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you know that when you were using it? You, did you know that? Yeah, from we that? filmed with him. We filmed, we actually filmed in the same location. We slightly different shot, but I mean, you can see from that location, that is literally what it looks like. You, there's a path this narrow <laughs> to walk through and it is piled high everywhere. Photographs, books. Yeah. It's, it's very challenging environment to shoot in. But no, I mean, I'd been there before and I knew about all the slides in the drawers behind his desk and his light boxes there. And that's, that's mm. where he works. That's his spot. Yeah. But you don't know. So someone who isn't used to being in front of the camera, you know, who isn't, I mean, I know he was an, a musician, but not necessarily being a photographer, being used to being in, in front of the camera. Well, we yeah, interviewed him really on camera in, in the Eagles film, so I knew he was a good on-camera yeah. guy. I think he's – I mean, there's been a film about him, too. I mean, I think he's done a fair share of, of media. And and he's – I mean, he's just a very comfortable soul. You know, he's comfortable yeah. with his own skin, and he's very genuine. You can um, tell. And, you know, so I don't think he's intimidated by cameras or anything. And like I said, I think he's done his fair share of 
spending yeah. time in front of cameras. I should recommend Holly. You need to go to the Morrison Hotel Gallery. That's um, that's on the Sunset yeah. Strip. It's all of Henry's photos, and it's really great. There's one in New York too, as well. Um, yeah. Have you ever been? Have you ever been to the Troubadour? Yep. And what are your What do you like yeah. about the, What are your impressions there? Who have you seen perform there? Um, well, actually, the, the only time I've been there was when we were filming with on the Eagles film, so Joe Walsh was playing. Oh, um, nice! <laughs> That's a yeah. good one. <laughs> um, no, I mean it's just it's a lovely it's a lovely venue. Um, yeah, no, I, I mean I haven't really gone to many shows there actually. So, but I haven't lived there in a very long time. So, where did you live when you were in L.A.? In Venice. Oh, okay. Oh. Yeah, well, where Jim, where Jim and Ray lived. Yep, exactly. <laughs> All right, let's uh, let, let's talk Linda because I love Linda. Since we've only seen part one, was she? Did you get her uh, uh, in a current interview? Yes. And okay, how yeah. she how yeah. she doing? And what uh, you know? First of all, how is she? <laughs> she, I mean, we interviewed her over you know probably a year ago now, um, and she you know she was doing well. Then she's just such a lovely person to be around. She's just such a great storyteller and so smart and so funny. You know, her health obviously is not great, but, um, you know, she seems to be doing all right. Like I said, I haven't seen her in a while, but um, she was lovely to interview and think she's, you know, she's a big part of part two. So, very okay. good. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, it seems like Linda was supportive of the male musicians. Like she, yes. you know, what is this? What is the story? How did she, did she find Glenn and, and Don or where? I, I can't remember the, can you explain this, the story of how they became? Sure. Yeah. She, um, she just happened to be at the Troubadour one night and Don Henley was playing in his band prior to the Eagles and she heard him drumming and he was playing um, Silver Threads and Golden Needles mm. and playing it in exactly the way she likes it to be played. So she's like, oh my God, we've got to get him. And then Glenn, she knew from hanging out at the Troubadour and she just loved him. So she just asked them to come separately to come join her, play, play backup for her. And they did. And then on the road with her, they kind of decided that they wanted to be in a band together. And she was incredibly supportive of that. And in fact, she and John Boylan recommended Randy Meisner and Bernie Ledden to them. And that's how the Eagles formed. All right. I've also heard that it's not the Eagles. It's just Eagles. Can you? Eagles. Yeah. It is just Eagles. It is Eagles. But, you know, everyone, I mean, it's history of the Eagles and they wanted that title. So it's like there's it's inconsistent. <laughs> Oh, that's interesting. History of the Eagles. Yeah. Because Dave and I have been, you know, arguing about this for a while. <laughs> no, they would say it's Eagles, not the Eagles. Mm -hmm. That's what they would say. But, you know, <laughs> should have been the Eagles then. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You, know, you can't go back now. Nope. <laughs> At the end of part one, you kind of, you, I mean, it's a, we know what's coming up is the, is the Manson murders and, and all that yeah. going on. How do you think that affected the music of Laurel Canyon? Well, I think, you know, I mean, there, there was always a darkness, even in the first half, first part where the, it, it, the story seems a little bit lighter. There's still a darkness on uh, undertones there. The, you know, the civil rights movement is happening and, and, you know, violent things are going on. The Vietnam is raging and these guys are draft eligible. And, you know, so there's always this underpinning darkness there. But I think in part two, what happens is that the darkness becomes immediately connected to the music scene directly with Altamont, with the deaths at Altamont and the Hells Angels being there. And then the Manson murders and Manson was tied into the music industry and it was a wannabe rock and roll star. 
um, who got these, you know, crazy people to follow him. So I think that the, that the darkness was directly from the music connected to the music world, I think changed things a bit. It also was these artists growing up and be maturing and becoming aware and, and conscious of the world around them in a, in a much bigger way. Um, I mean, it's funny when you think about for what it's worth being, everyone thinks it's about the Vietnam War. It was written about these kids who couldn't get into this club. So they protested, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's, you know, the, the meaning it's been assigned, attributed to after what, other than what it was originally mm -hmm. about. It's, it's really cool. So I think the music, it shifted a bit, but there's still, there's a lot of lightness in part two also. It's not all doom and gloom by any stretch of the yeah. imagination. <laughs> It's just, you know, reality, you know, reality strikes. These artists are getting older. Plus, frankly, the drugs changed. It went from I was about, pot, yeah, I was about to coke, which had a profound impact on everyone. And it was a bad impact. It was, you know, it, it was, that's a dark drug. <laughs> Did you talk to David Crosby a lot about that? A little bit. Yeah. Well, I mean, I talked to everybody about it. I mean, one of my first questions to everyone was, what did Laurel Canyon smell like? And they all said pot. And then, and then another question was, you know, what happened when it changed, when the drugs shifted from pot to coke in the seventies and they all were like, yeah, it just, it took the life out of, it just sucked the life out of something that was so beautiful before. Did you talk to David Geffen? I wasn't, uh, I don't remember. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yep. Um, Cause he, I mean, I, I guess that was another part of like all of a sudden these, these managers like Elliot Roberts, yeah. I'm glad you got him too. That's wonderful that, that he's, he's in. Yeah. There. We did the last interview with him before he died. Oh, yeah. So sad. Yeah. But, but yeah, it's wonderful that you were able to, to get that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, suddenly I think a lot of these businessmen started to realize, Hey, we can make a lot of money off this. And that's, I think that changed the scene as well. Is that, was that something that you gathered as well? Yeah, no, definitely. And I mean, and Elliot and, you know, David, at least certainly in the beginning, but, you know, especially Elliot was a really good guy and mm -hmm. had, and, and David was too, and, and had the best interests of their artists were, was foremost, mm -hmm. but they also certainly realized they could make money and others came in after them and really realized they could make money. And that's also when it shifted, you know, and these, and these bands, you know, these artists went from playing at the Troubadour for one another to, and supporting one another to playing, you know, stadiums and coliseums and, you know, making huge amounts of money. And the, the scene just sort of kind of slowly faded out. But but there's still, I mean, did you, you find there's still a, a, a scene in Laurel Canyon? I mean, there's a lot of yeah. contemporary artists that are they're still, that still play there. I mean, you, you drive through yeah. Laurel Canyon. I still, once in a while, I'll see someone on, at the country store <laughs> playing guitar just on the corner there. Yeah. And it's, it's still a very healthy scene. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and what's been interesting in COVID is, uh, the Laurel Canyon Society, they've been doing, um, where everyone plays music out their, uh, doors and windows. So the music's now wafting out uh, across the canyon again, which is really cool. Oh, that's cool. Uh, we didn't even talk about love a little bit, the band. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what an amazing band. Um, yeah. but they kind of handed the baton off to, to the doors. Um, yeah. in a way they, cause they had, they were not happy or why don't you tell the story of love or what you, well, it, I mean, I, I, I did not know this story, but some, there are people that have heard this story before, but I didn't know it before. And it's just amazing. It's that, you know, love had signed with Electra. They were their only rock band at that point. 
and they weren't happy with Electra. Electra wasn't in their minds promoting them enough. They, you know, so, and they got another offer that was a really good offer, but Electra wouldn't let them out of their contract. So Johnny and Arthur decided, well, okay, let's get them to sign the doors and then they'll let us out of our contract and we'll go on and sign this contract with this much better company for us. And so, of course, they, they beg um, Holtzman to go see Jim and the Doors play. And in the film, he only goes twice. In reality, he went three times, oh. both times. He, for the first two times, he went, he just like, I don't get it. Jim was staggering all over the stage and he just didn't. But the third time he was on fire and he's like, oh, my God, they signed them that night. And then all the money that they would, that Electra would have presumably spent on promoting love got switched to the doors and love kind of got left in the dust. Mm. It's a sad story, but it's an amazing one. <laughs> they didn't have anything in writing that said that they could be, uh, that they can terminate their contract if they, uh, if the doors were signed to the label. No, no, <laughs> they, no, they pushed the doors on them and then yeah. and they got taken over. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. Love continue to make amazing music, but yeah. I, I don't think that they, were or are as known as they certainly should be. Yeah, I agree. And I, I didn't even think about it at the time, but you, you mentioned in the film that when they toured the South, they, yep. they were not Couldn't allowed play. to play. I mean, that's yeah. insane. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they were allowed to play if they agreed to play to segregated audiences, which they refused to do. Yeah. That is hard for us to imagine. Yeah. Well, is it, you know, it's yeah, like, I know. No. <laughs> you know, no, it's so scary. It's like you think we should be so much further along and look at where we are. Yeah, I guess knowing that is apropos of now, right? Knowing, yeah. knowing the story of love, which I didn't know either. Yeah, yeah. Johnny was it, lovely to talk to. Oh, that's great. He, did you, did he's you have got a, such a twinkle in his eye, too? <laughs> did you have a lot of Arthur Lee footage or what? Um, yeah. that you were able no, to not a lot, but there's some of that footage yeah. of love, that, that home movie stuff is so wonderful mm-hmm. of them, you know, running around and bicycling around and then their cars driving. There's some really fun footage. There wasn't a lot of them though. Yeah. There wasn't a lot. Mostly we tell their stories with stills. That's amazing. Was, do you think that was, I mean, I guess the, the photographers mentioned that they didn't know what they were, that they were filming history or, or, you know, right. but, but there's a lot of, there are a lot of cameras around there. It's, there's more footage than you expect. Is that, yeah. it was, I mean, it seemed like a lot of people had cameras, but you know, it wasn't like phones, but, uh, but there were still people were re- documenting this, this, like it yeah, was. Yeah, no, they were. And what was great is that they were documenting on things like 16 millimeter that had <laughs> longevity. Whereas like when we get into the Go-Go's film, it's now early video, eighties video, which yeah. with the crappy home cameras mm-hmm. that stuff is shot in. And it looks like crap and it doesn't hold up at all. So, you know, we were lucky that we had so much, you know, so many wonderful 16 millimeter films that people just shot home movies of stuff back then. So Nareet was not, when, when you introduced her, she yeah. was not a photographer. She was not introduced as a photographer. She, she was a, she documented them and she, she said, I think it was her own voice. She said, I carried a camera everywhere. Yeah. No, she carried a camera. She came to LA as a groupie. She loved the music. She yeah. admitted she was a groupie. She got jobs working the lights at the Troubadour and the Whiskey. <laughs> and then as a result of that, got to know the bands and just was a, you know, I mean, she's led an interesting life. She spent a lot of time living in Israel and a kibbutz. And so she's, you know, had, had some interesting experiences and she just had her camera always with her. So she started taking pictures everywhere and, mm-hmm. and then she became a bonafide photographer. So yeah. amazing. Also, 
on the marquee, you mentioned there's the band, uh, the Flying Burrito Brothers. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay. So Graham Parsons, how much footage did you have of them? Because, uh, I mean, Graham was larger than life, or he seemed larger than life, you know? Yeah, no. And very think, influ- sure. influential in, a, in a, the country rock scene and, and to the birds. So, I mean, what, what can you tell us about Graham and, and, and the Flying Burrito? Yeah, Brothers? I mean, we didn't have too much of him specifically for this. Um, I don't know that a lot of footage exists, but you know, we were, it wasn't all so Graham specific. I mean, I, my, some of my favorite footage in this, in this Laurel Canyon project is the footage of him when Graham decides to go get those rhinestone suits done. The n- nudie <laughs> suits? The nudie suits. Yeah, they're so amazing looking yeah. and they look amazing. Those photographs are, and we have some footage of that. Um, which was cool. I don't know how much stuff exists of Graham. There's a lot of photographs of Graham, mm-hmm. you know, and we used a different music clip of Graham and the Breeder Brothers in the Eagles film. But yeah, I don't know um, how much more exists. We didn't, you know, we didn't have a ton of stuff uh, of him. Mostly what we had of him is photographs. Yeah. Well, apparently Graham hung out with uh, Keith Richards a lot. Oh, notoriously. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, they were, yeah, they were, I think they were best friends, which, <laughs> I, I hope when, I hope there's footage of them hanging out together somewhere. <laughs> Again, they're photographs. I don't know about footage. Yeah, it must be somewhere. The last last person that we mentioned that that was kind of fun to see is is Alice Cooper. He's all over yeah. the Laurel Canyon scene. Yeah, yeah, that was great. Stuff. And I didn't think because I think of him as a metal guy, but Zappa took him under his wing. <laughs> I didn't even know Alice Cooper was part of the Laurel Canyon scene. I didn't know he lived there. I didn't know he was connected with Zappa in that way. Um, and when I interviewed him, he told me that story about showing up at Zappa's house at 7 a.m. for an audition. Yeah. <laughs> like, who would have thought that, especially back then, to show right. up at 7 a.m.? <laughs> a musician. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. That's how ambitious he was. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's how serious you are about making yeah. your, you know, wanting to make a go of it. Yeah, and Alice and said they were so nervous and they came in their chrome pants. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Anyway, that's great. Uh, yeah, it seemed like um, Frank Zappa was kind of like Mama Cass. He was kind of a nurturing uh, yeah. musician as well. Was, was yeah. brought people into his fold, you know, and and if he liked it or even if he didn't get it, he he wanted to be a part of the of their scene or tried to understand. Yeah, it. no, absolutely. And Mark Volman of the Turtles went on to to um, play with Zappa um, after the Turtles disbanded. So there, there was a lot of of people floating in and out of each other's realms of lives musically and otherwise in that whole era. It's very incestuous. <laughs> <laughs> what was, there was a lot of uh, like an exposition scene where there was a car, like a convertible driving in Laurel Canyon. Yeah. What was that? Did you recreate that or was that something that you found? We did two recreations with, again, these were with, well, we did both helicopter and on the ground with those cars. We had the the green car in part one and the red convertible in part two. Mm. Um, we just wanted to because you know car driving in those canyons was such a part of their lives and songs on the radio that it was just a device to you know be literally driving around in the canyons. So we shot that stuff. We also shot a lot of material on Super Eight, and some of it you probably can't even tell whether it was you know old archival footage or recently shot because we intentionally shot it on super eight and kind of shaky and made it look like it was organic from the time. It was very effective because it took, it took me there too. That was great. Did they touch on the radio at all? I mean, we we kind of both of Holly and I have a radio background. I don't know if they mentioned like being heard on KHJ or KFWB, you know, boss radio or the importance of radio. What, uh, 
Yeah, yeah. Um, well, Jim Ladd plays a role in part two. He actually starts off oh. part two. Yeah, so um, so the radio comes in and in a bigger way in part two, I think. But also what was happening, you know, like all the, everything, not just the music on the radio, but the world is sort of seeping in through radio and television. It started, you know, it's landing in the living rooms in these places. Um, we watched Kent State happen from a house in Laurel Canyon that we recreated. Going into recreating something, what, what did you do to recreate that, uh, that atmosphere? Well, we, we, we built this set um, actually at our director of photography, Sam Painter's house out on his balcony. And we, I mean, it was pretty elaborate, but we, you know, we got a chair and an old television set and we did, we did it as a time-lapse thing. So the, the city behind was getting darker and darker and darker mm-hmm. as the night goes on. Yeah. I mean, we just, you know, props and, <laughs> you know, set design and all that. And it was, you know, that shot took a very long time to, to get. It was like, I think we filmed for about, I don't know, five hours for that one shot. Mm. Did you grow up using Super 8? Did you, I mean, like your first, I'm sure you made some student films. Was it Super 8? What was your, your, your I choice? I did shoot some, some Super 8 stuff. I was more of a photographer when I was a kid. Not, not, I did shoot some Super 8, but you know, when I was a kid, that stuff was, it was expensive to get it, you know, processed and then we show it to and everything. So I took, I, I started as a photographer. I was actually photographing from the time I was like nine years old. Mm. Um, and when I was 12, I was actually getting paid to do portraits. <laughs> so that's, that was my entry. I always wanted to be a photojournalist from reading National Geographic from very young age and <laughs> turned into a documentary filmmaker. Instead. Yeah. <laughs> well, Logical was, transition. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. We love the scene. We love the Laurel Canyon scene and someone who could really bring it together. I mean, there, there's been a lot of movies or documentaries trying to, to kind of encapsulate what exactly happened. And, and you seem to have uh, accomplished that. It's, it was really, it's, uh, it's a wonderful viewing and it's, uh, it's available on epics right now. Yep. Um, and it'll be, it'll be on there for a while, I assume. And then probably, <laughs> I don't know, do, do things come out, uh, you get ephemeral, you get like, uh, you can get like Blu-ray there, DVDs and. Yeah, no, it's funny that question's coming up a lot about this. I don't think that they've thought it through yet. I, there's a rights issue, which may be, um, you know, cause the, the music rights haven't, I don't think they paid for DVD release. So they might uh. have to revisit all that in order to release it that way. But th- there's no answer for it right now, but it was, it's going to live on epics for quite a while, I imagine. So. Um, people can catch it. And if they don't have epics and want to check it out, they can do a seven-day free trial that's being offered. Oh, excellent. Oh, yeah. that's perfect. Thank you again, Allison. This was uh, this was a joy. And uh, we look forward thank to you. it. Yes, thank you. Yeah. All right. Be safe out there, you yep. guys. Yes, you too. Thank you. You Take too. Care. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Wow. Well, that was great fun. Thank you so much to Allison Elwood, the director of the documentary Laurel Canyon, which is available on the Epics channel. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, Make sure you check us out on all our social medias. Um, And then, of course, there's our website at WDDIMpodcast.com. Sign up, won't you, for our newsletter. It's a monthly newsletter. And we promise we won't spam you except this one time a month. (laughs) The first of every month, you will get a newsletter telling you about what's upcoming and sometimes a a few little uh, treats, a little audio treats and um, a lot of fun. So um, check us out on WDDIMpodcast.com. And until next week, this is Dave. This is Holly. Check you later. Over and out.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 